Hi everyone, Wynn Claybaugh here. Our society tends to loosely throw around the term hero all too often. This next interview features a true American hero. Master Sergeant Cedric King was severely wounded in Afghanistan, losing both legs and suffering permanent damage to his right hand and arm. But his unstoppable faith helped him push through the darkest days and come out shining on the other side. His inspirational story is filled with takeaways we can all use to help us through our own challenges. On any day when you feel like you or a friend is struggling a bit, you'll definitely want to listen to Cedric. If you enjoy this interview as much as I did, please share it with your friends and anyone who could use some encouragement. Then sign up for our mailing list at www.masterspodcastclub.com so you won't miss a single episode. Now get ready to feel humbled, inspired, and grateful as you listen to my friend, Cedric King. Hi everybody, Wynn Claybaugh here, and welcome to this wonderful issue of Masters. I'm going to do a disclaimer here right when I begin that this is probably going to be an emotional interview for me. I'm such a wimp when it comes to some of these things. There are certain topics and certain people and certain causes that if you make me go there, I'm going to be bawling. I'm going to be uh, crying my eyes out. And uh, and this is probably one of those days. I'm sitting with an amazing man who I'm going to tell you about, but please welcome Cedric King to Masters. Welcome, Cedric. I thanks so much, Wynn. I'm glad to be here, man. It's great talking to you, as always. Well, I met Cedric through the Gary Sinise Foundation, which uh, hopefully everybody knows what that is all about. I had the honor of interviewing Gary Sinise himself several years ago, and you can get your hands on that interview. And just the brilliant work that that foundation does, which Cedric can talk about, but Cedric is an ambassador for that. And so when we were looking for a speaker to come into my organization to talk about the Gary Sinise Foundation, I was uh, sent a a link for an email, and it listed all of these ambassadors, and I have no idea why. Well, I I do know why, but I picked you. I said, I want that guy. I knew nothing about you, but I want that guy. And everything happens exactly how it's supposed to happen. We met. We connected. You were just unbelievable to my group. So get this. I have Cedric speaking to about 300 of my leaders. Unbelievable. I mean, you could have heard a pin drop. Cedric walks off the stage. And said, hey, Wynn, I'm so sorry. I blew it. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, Wynn, I blew it. I just, I couldn't connect with your audience. I'm like, Cedric, turn around and look. There was a line. We had to cancel part of the program because there was a line of people just waiting to meet you and hug you and tell their stories and cry and get a photo taken with you. You connect with people because of your story. Yeah, I, I remember that day. I remember it like it was yesterday, man. I felt like I just couldn't get through to the to the audience, but your audience, man, they had poker faces. They were just no emotion, but no laughter. No, it was just they were so stoic, and I didn't get it until you said, "Hey, man, look at that line there, man. They all the way out the door. These are the guys that own the schools." And uh, but I will tell you, man, that was predestined to be in that room. I've had such blessings from being at your schools and meeting your students. It's been incredible. Well, let me tell our listeners a little bit about who you are, and then we'll get into your story. So, Cedric King, U.S. Army Master Sergeant, joined the military in 1995 on a reconnaissance mission during his third deployment in Afghanistan in 2012. 
the force of an improvised explosive device, an IED, threw him off his feet. He sustained right-hand disfigurement and became a bilateral amputee, losing both of your legs. Since his injury, Cedric has earned numerous medals and awards, run marathons, climbed mountains, and become an ambassador for the Gary Sinise Foundation. He plans to finish graduate school, complete a full Ironman, oh my gosh, climb Mount Kilimanjaro, launch a nonprofit organization that gives back to low-income communities, and provide a home for his wife and daughters to begin again. You know, the reason why I was connected to you and why I have since sent you to I don't know how many of my schools to share your message. There's a lot of teachers and mentors that give great, great messages, but to me, the best teachers are storytellers. And anyone can preach and quote doctrine from a book, but when a speaker has the capacity to move an audience through their words and their stories, their influence is profound. Cedric, your message not only is a story of heroism and service and perseverance, but, you know, combine all of that together and your message can build communities, inspire self-esteem, fix marriages, and absolutely save countries. So thank you again. I'm just... <laughs> man, thank you so humbled. much. Thank you so much. This is a journey, man. It's been a journey. It's been a tough journey. And it's almost like sometimes... I look back and it's like it's been a dream, man. Four, almost not even four years ago. It's been three years and 10, 12 months. So I mean, not even four years months. ago that this happened to you. Three years and about eight months. Wow. And uh, life can turn on a dime, man. One day it's like this. Another day it's like this. But so many lessons I've learned just by not having legs, just by going through life without what I started with. You know, you can go through your whole life and have problems and stuff like that. But, but man, this particular challenge is cut to the unique thread of my fiber of my of my being. I had to lose my legs to understand some things. Um, I told you to wear something sexy today, and you said <laughs> yeah. that you had uh, new sexy prosthetics, Absolutely. which you wore. So, <laughs> you know, sometimes when you stand on stage, like when you first stood on stage in front of my group the first time, I was almost wishing that you were in shorts. Yeah. You know, you you wore, uh, you know, suit, long pants, and I almost wish that you were up there because, I hate to say it, it kind of gives you credibility. That's why yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. why the audience was so stoic that day because they were just in awe. It wasn't stoic of boredom or anything. It was just in complete awe of your story. And when people see your prosthetics, and I know that you have different types of prosthetics. You have Absolutely. some for walking, some for running marathons. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, can I borrow those? Maybe it'll help hey, me run a marathon. I, I tell you what, you you never know when you look at the legs initially. You're like, wow, this guy is running on these these prosthetic legs, man. But the thing about the legs is, you have to go through a period of adjustment just to wear them. There's pain that you incur as soon as you put them on, and you have to be a certain type of person to even want to wear the prosthetics. You see, a lot of guys they sit in the wheelchairs, and that's totally understandable. But there's so much pain. Just to put them on, man. How many types do you have? Three. I have, three types. What, I have what some for cycling, uh, running, and then regular walking. And when I met you that day, you told me that the ones for walking, you're on stage that they kind of have about a 45 minute time period before it becomes really, really painful. In uh, fact, absolutely. we walked off the stage and you immediately took them off. Talk about that. The wonderful thing about it is when you're doing the thing that you feel like life has called you to do, I did not feel the pain while I was on the stage. When I'm talking to your students, 
I am in a place where there is no immediate discomfort. I'm where I'm supposed to be. And somehow, as soon as I stop it, it's like the pain comes back. Oh. But when I'm on stage, standing up for an amount of time that I'm not supposed to be able to stand up and do, I don't feel that pain. It's almost like I got my, my old legs back. Right. It's almost like the pain that I'm supposed to have, your body isn't meant to bear the weight of your entire body on nubs. Right. It's not. You're supposed to have feet. But when I'm on that stage talking to your students, I don't feel that discomfort like I normally do. And that's got to be dialed in to me doing what I'm supposed to be doing. That's why I tell you, man, this is a gift. It's a gift to be able to express yourself and be able to be in that moment and that band of purpose and being where you're supposed to be. It's just awesome, man. We're going to get to how that became a gift for you because I have a feeling that I don't know for how long you were not considering this a gift. Oh, my God. Like, how long was the pity party? <sighs> Months. Months. Maybe long, maybe longer. But I look back on it now in retrospect. It seems like it was a period of months where I wake up out of an eight-day coma, and my wife and my mother are explaining to me that I don't have legs or a right hand anymore or the use of a right hand anymore. And when you, you're in that situation, sometimes you look and say, I don't have this anymore, so I cannot be this person. Because I don't have this, then I can't be that. And that's the lie that I told myself. There's a, there's a liar that's on the inside of all of us. And if you listen to that person long enough, what you'll do is you'll start buying everything. It's almost like a newspaper that you buy every day. There's a guy on the inside of each of us that sells newspapers every day. And you can either buy it or you can trash it. And that is exactly what I was doing. The guy on the inside was selling me this newspaper. And the headline said, you don't have this, so you can't be this. And I just start buying it and buying it. And the more that I bought it, I felt worse and worse and worse. Until certain circumstances happen in your life. And you're like, that's a fallacy that I've been believing all this time. I got to stop buying that newspaper and I got to buy another newspaper. I got to buy another publication. I got to start subscribing to a different philosophy. All of us watched Forrest Gump. Absolutely. Where Gary Sinise, who plays Lieutenant Dan, yeah, yeah, yeah. loses his legs and becomes an alcoholic, becomes yeah. a, just a pity party. Yeah. And uh, that's your hero. That guy. I remember when he said he got some award. He's like, wait a minute, I... I was an actor. I played that yes. role, and I got an award for it. Yes. There are people who are living this for real, have really lost their legs. Man, I watched that movie 20 years before I became Lieutenant Dan. Right. I watched, and, and when I talk to Gary now, I'm so inquisitive about each moment of the filming or whatnot. And he is so... He's in awe of us because we actually live it. He was an amputee in a movie, and he understands some of the challenges just because he's on set every day doing that role. Let me tell you, man, this has been the greatest adventure of my entire life, man. And it's like a maze that I'm in, and I'm trying to get to the place in the maze where you get the, the prize. And it's like these small little challenges are being thrown my way. And not, not every day. And sometimes it's only one or two challenges every day. But, man, 
when I'm on this journey, it's an adventure and you're having to figure out how you're going to get up the stairs or you're, you're in aisle eight of the 15 aisle grocery store and you got stuff to buy and you got kids that are like picking up everything and you want to get to the end of the grocery store. But it's the challenge of psyching yourself up to stay on the target, mentally focused on the target. And nobody's saying, hey, you can do it. You can you can do it. You can get to the you're supposed to get to the end of the grocery store when you got legs. But when you don't have legs, people say, well, ah, you're back on your feet again. And they take so many things for granted. We all do. Cedric, let's, let's go into your story. You know, Take us back sure, to what sure. happened. Sure. Uh, about July 2012, I was stationed in Afghanistan. I had already been there for about six months at the time, maybe seven, eight months maybe at the time. And... Uh, we're doing combat missions, so you walk through villages in Afghanistan every day, and you're you're trying to keep civility in the region. And to do that, you walk around and you engage in the populace, and you talk to them, and you find them. But there are guides there that don't want you there, and they shoot at you, you know, to keep you from coming to a village or to scare you away or even scare the locals into not talking to you. So it's a cat-and-mouse game every day. And, uh, man, I remember this one day. I got a mission that said, hey, you're going to be going to this village. And the village is deserted. All the inhabitants have gone. And we found out the inhabitants are gone because the, the local Taliban militia has taken over. And they've put bombs everywhere in the village to keep the Americans from coming into the village. It's a very risky thing to be doing. But all we were going to do is gather evidence, gather like pictures and things to, to build a case to say this entire grid, this little village needs to be, you know, demolished. And then we were going to restore that village and have the inhabitants come back and live peaceful life. But um, to do that, you got to go in and do dangerous things, gather evidence. You have to go through minefield to even get to the village and take soil samples and, and gather evidence and... Man, that morning that we left, I can remember it was super early. We started out super early. And uh, we get me about five minutes outside the gate, outside the guard towers. And we're starting to be shot at. And I can remember when it was like, when a bullet goes by your head, you feel so much gratitude, man. In that single split second, you hear it and it, it hits something behind you. Or it hits like the ground behind you. And you can hear it. And it's a little little, little puff of smoke. Or a little puff of dust. And you know that you dodge danger for a split second or two. But it keeps coming. We fought off the guys. And then maybe about 15, 20 minutes later, they counterattack us. Right? And they're counterattacking us where half of us are split into doing the reconnaissance. And half of us are in like a, a power position just for security purposes. And, man, I go in to the building, and I'm getting the thumbs up to make sure the job is done right. And I come back outside. I, I make a move to come back outside with the guys that are getting shot at. And uh, and I was like, man, I put my foot down, my right foot, just like you would do if you're walking out, out of this door or if you're walking into the kitchen. You just pick up your right foot. And I, I begin to pick up my left, and, man, it was just like it. It's like maybe a grenade had dropped or something like that, or maybe a rocket had been shot at us or something like that. It's intense ringing noise in my ears. They're ringing. This one is ringing right now. It's tendonitis or something. That's what they call it. And uh, 
I'm laying down and I initially I thought I'd just been knocked to the ground. So I try to get back up and uh, I can't get back up. And the medics that are with us are running over and I hear people shouting, but it's muffled. It's like, it's, it's, it sounds like that. It's real muffled. And uh, there's a guy that comes over. He's the medic and he starts putting tourniquets on me. I'm like, man, what is he doing? He don't have to put tourniquets on me. Just they're guys that, to my left and my right. Those guys need medical attention. And they're yelling. And I'm like, help those guys out. I'm like, I'm going to get back up. You know, I'm just stand back up. But what I don't know is that both my legs have been severely injured. Severely. And I take a second to pick up my right arm. And my right arm, I could, for the first time ever, it looks like something you see in the in biology class. The, the skeleton, you know. I'm looking at it, and it, it's crazy. I'm looking straight through my arm, man. This is nuts. At the same time, it feels like somebody's poking me with with like a, a hot comb all over my body, though. The shrapnel. What I don't know at the time is the shrapnel all over my body. My lungs have been punctured. There's so many things that are happening all in one time. I begin to go, my brain can't handle all the trauma at the same time. Um... They get me stabilized enough to get on a gurney. They call in this helicopter and uh, I'll go onto this helicopter and they whisk me away. And the guys that were shooting at us, as soon as the helicopters land, those dudes just, you know, they scatter, you know. We get to the nearest little field hospital. And this is why I tell you students, it was almost like, like a MASH episode. You know, this TV show MASH. When it first comes on, you see the helicopter coming, the credits, you know. And I felt like it was in an episode of MASH, man. It was crazy. I'm landing, and there are doctors and field nurses and, you know, people running out to the helicopter, take us off the helicopter, and take us back in the tent. It's like a makeshift hospital, you know. And uh, I just, I, can, I don't remember anything after that. I blacked out. And uh, eight days later, man, I wake up in, in the United States. This is crazy. I was just on the other side of the planet. When I close my eyes, I open my eyes, and I'm all the way on the other side of the planet in Maryland. It's crazy, outside of D.C. And my mom and my wife are telling me all the crazy stuff that has happened. And they ask me, well, what was the last thing you remember? And the last thing I remember is, you know, uh, getting on a helicopter. I closed my eyes. I was going into the tent. And my wife, she said, okay, so you probably know. You know what? What are you talking about? And she puts her head down. It's like this. And my mom turns her head and walks out the door. And I'm like, what is going on? Just spit it out. What is it? What happened? Did one of my friends, one of the guys died? What happened? And she said, um, you, had to take, you had to take both of your legs. We were losing you. And three days ago, we were losing you. Couldn't get you stable. And uh, we almost lost you on the operating table because your body was trying to do so much work to try and save your life. It was losing. Your blood pressure dropped, like, severely low, and uh, we almost lost you. So the doc made the decision to take both the legs off, one above the knee and one below the knee. And when, let me tell you, man, if you've ever been low before, I can promise you this, man. I don't know if you can be lower than that. I, I've never been any lower than that. I don't know how much the human spirit can endure, 
But at that point, man, I've never, ever been that low before. Because initially, you're listening to the bad news and you're saying, all right, well, what's the point? What's the point? It's almost like being on death row. You've been sentenced to death row. Either you die in this state, in this condition, or you live with this condition. And they both look exactly the same. Death and life, they look exactly the same. They look identical, horrible, either death or life. And honestly, at that moment, it was like death was probably a little bit more uh, relieving than life, man. That's what you felt. That's what I felt, man. You know, life can be so tough sometimes where you look at the comparison, you say, all right, death, at least in death, um, there's some sort of freedom with life. I'm sentenced. It's almost like it's a sentence that was handed to me by a judge unlawfully for me doing the right thing, man. I was doing the right thing, man. And and all of a sudden, this horrible feeling of I got to live the rest of my natural born life with no legs. A sentence. A sentence. It was like a judgment had come down. You'd be sentenced the rest of your life without legs. Guilty. Almost like guilty, a verdict. And and I mean I became overwhelmed, man. It was just too much it was too much, man. And when you get bad news like that, man, sometimes we don't know how to handle it. And what we do sometimes is we try and cope in a number of different ways. But for me, I didn't know how to handle that, man. And over these last three and a half years. It's been the best thing. It's, it was a gift in disguise. It was a gift in disguise. I'll say it again. It was something that came along that looked like a judgment verdict. And it was honestly, it was a gift wrapped up in in toilet paper. It was a gift wrapped up in horrible wrapping paper, man. But to find out it was a gift, (laughs) I had to unwrap it, man. I had to get through all the toilet paper. I had to rip off some stuff. I had to actually go into it. And the only way you can do that is sometimes just live through it. You live through it long enough, you begin to see it's really not a bad thing. Well, for some people. And then other people, the longer they live with it, it gets just worse and worse. This is more of a burden than what I previously imagined and... Was that a choice that you had to make that, okay, this is going to ruin me or this is going to be a gift, as you as you call it, an adventure? Yeah. Was that a choice you had to make? Was it your wife slapping you upside the head? Was it your little kids saying, come on, Daddy, this doesn't mean anything? What was it? it, it uh, I tell you this. It is a mixture of all of that. Um, I grew up from a faith background. I grew up in a church. I'd go to church every Sunday. I grew up in the church. And all of that stuff that I learned in life, it all was being tested. All of the faith, all of the Bible studies, all of the Sunday school lessons, everything was now being tested. Right. And now here's an opportunity for me to either pass or fail. It's time to jump in the deep end. You got to sink or swim. Can't hold on to the wall. And here it is. There's nobody you can and look on somebody else's paper. Can't do it. 
You, you can't you can't look on anybody else's paper and you can't get the lessons. You can't get the right answer. What's the answer for 18? Is C or B? Nobody there to give you the answers. And sometimes in life, what we do is we go through this life and we think that life is going to be just like it is in school or just like. And sometimes there's a period where there is just no answer. You got to figure it out. And the only answers that come are you sometimes making wrong answers. So you're referring to like, like well, there's no answer, meaning the, the why, why me? Yeah, yeah. Did, that, did that, you? Did you? Uh... Oh, man, that why me? That why me is the that was maybe that wasn't there was, it was two of those questions. Why me was one of the questions, but it was like a two part question. It was like why did this have to happen to me, and when is it going to get better? There was like a two part question. And I would always, I would be in the hospital bed when, and I would be there for hours. And no cable, no computer, internet was broken. Nobody was coming in to visit me. And I started to feel so, started doing pity parties, man. I said, why did this have to happen to me? And when is it going to get better? And see, that's the thing. That's the thing that we do. We think we're so ready to get to the destination. We're so ready to get to the end. We stop looking around and looking at all the beautiful scenery that's there. Why did this have to happen to me and when is it going to get better? And the problem with those two questions is just this. It has everything to do with you. It's those are self-centered questions. It, those are questions that are built around your comfort, your benefit, your well-being. It has nothing to do with service to others has nothing to do with giving your life as a sacrifice or as a tool for a higher power to use. It, it, it's totally centered on you. The better question, the question that actually began to yield answers was this. It was this. How can this become a teacher? How, how can this, this tragedy, it looks like a tragedy to me, how can this be a gift to someone else? How can this, this pain that I'm feeling right now, how can this be some sort of launch pad for someone else? How can this be my teacher? At what point did you start asking those questions, and who taught you to change the question? I listened to a lot of, of faith leaders. And were there other people in the hospital bed next to you worse off than you? There were. There were. Did that so, help? So in the beginning, in the beginning, it was, it was just me in this, my own room. It was just me in my own room. I had like this, this room, and there were like... My wife put these cards up, and she put, like, well-wishers. They had tons and thousands of cards. She put them all up on the walls, and it changed the feeling in the room. But I would tell you, um, that came from somewhere else. I don't know where that came from, but it was imparted into me to say, if life can go this far to the left, it's something about life. That is a guarantee that if it can go this far to the left, there's some at least some possibility that it can also go this far to the right. And and depending on my state of mind and my thankfulness and my attitude, it can even surpass that far to the right. It has to be that way with seasons. It happens this way. For fall, for summer, for spring. For winter, it, they all have their allotted times, and it will change. It is my responsibility to be here for the change. I don't have to sit there in wintertime just grumpy. 
I'm in the dead of winter with a summer that's on the inside of me. I'm in the dead of pain with some sort of joy on the inside of me. Hmm. And the thing about it is this. I found that I can change the season by what I have in my heart. I command the seasons. I might not command the weather. I might not be able to command everything on the outside. But if I keep my spirit on the inside, I'm in control of that. And somehow by me being in control of this on the inside, it controls that on the outside. I have so many questions for you. I want to know a little bit more about the story. So how long were you? Was it the Walter Reed Hospital? Uh, man, yeah, yeah. So how long were you there? Three years. I was in the hospital for three years. Three years. Learning yeah. how to walk. Learning how to, to write again. Learning how to type. Uh, learning how to, to be in the wheelchair for a little while, learning about my injury. And At what point did you start with the prosthetics? And I started with the prosthetics in November of t- four months later. I got introduced to prosthetics four months after me being blown up. I was walking in in four months. Is that a choice that you make? You, did they no. say, do you want to be in a wheelchair or you want prosthetics? No, no. Well, it's always your choice. But here's the deal. With prosthetics, it's like this. You're teaching your, your daughter how to ride a bike again. She falls off the bike. You want to get her back on that bike as soon as possible. Right. They understood that philosophy intrinsically. And for me, they understood, all right, no matter how bad the injury, we got to get you back on your feet before you even get a chance to even let it sink in that you're not a walker. Well, isn't it is also physically and medically, is it, it becomes dangerous to be sitting in the chair. I'd absolutely. What does, that do to your, what does that do to the rest of your body to not be functional or, or moving around? You're asking great questions, man. Um, <laughs> this oh, I studied is, you. <laughs> these are great questions. So your body, after not walking and all the trauma, my bone density became a lot more soft than, than the normal human because right. you, you're not walking around and you're in a hospital bed. So my bone density had gone below where it's supposed to go. So uh, I had to actually take vitamins. I had to actually take certain supplements to get my bone density back. I was eating spinach and, and eating leafy greens and stuff like that. And and my bone density began to harden and began to get better and better. So soon, my bone density was where it could be. It was just above where it should have been for me to actually be able to walk. On a prosthetic. On a prosthetic. Right. It needs to be able to endure the, the toughness of prosthetics. And as soon as I got up on there, man, I thought, bro, it was like, man, it was like a I was so thankful, man. But at the same time, it was so much more pain than I imagined it was going to, to be. To be on prosthetics. Yeah. It was way... I thought it was just going to be like... Um, I thought it was going to be just something really easy. Like, I stand back up on it, and it's going to be just like my legs from before. But it wasn't. It was this intense pain I had never felt before, man. And, man, I didn't want I didn't want to go through it. I didn't want to walk on these prosthetics. But I was happy to be up on my legs. But I can only stand up on them for like 10, 20 minutes at a time. You know, people are curious because – so people see you. Do they turn the other way? I mean, they're curious, because, but they want to know. Yeah. But then they turn the other way because they don't want to embarrass you or embarrass themselves. Yeah. And, and what would you rather people do? I would rather people be honest with themselves and just say, hey, listen. Um, you want people to come up and say, how would you lose your legs? What happened? I want people to be empathetic about it, right. but I don't want their sympathy. I want them to empathize. So tell, tell me the difference then. What? Well, empathize is you, the way I see it is empathy is not you feeling bad for me, but it's you putting yourself in my shoes okay. and saying, all right, listen, I want to be delicate enough. I want to be, uh, just be understanding. Just right. be understanding. Now, there's some kids that, kids are so 
different than adults. They come up and say, what happened to your legs? What, what, you got cool bionic legs, you're a robot? And I, and I understand from a kid's point of view, the curiosity, they don't have a filter. And they're honest, and I know adults want to do the same thing. But adults have lived for so long that they allow the norms of society to affect them in their interactions with people. Can't do that. You gotta be honest with what's in your heart. There's a fiber that connects all of us. And when you're doing that, when you're being honest, I know, I know, I don't know for anybody else, but I am very certain when people are being true to themselves, to what's in their heart. And when I know that, then I know that it's not disrespect. What it is, it's curiosity. Or it's a cause to understand. Mm -hmm. And that way, we can meet at that place. Now, if you're just being disrespectful, there are people that are that have been disrespectful over the years, and uh, they're just very coarse, you know, and maybe not understanding. Right. And and I understand that too. And I, I there has to be a place where you get to Ignorance. in life where where I can't be angry at every person that doesn't understand. Right. I have to love them. I have to love them anyway. You'll be angry the rest of your life. Yeah, you'd be angry right. for the rest of. Your, I have to find a place. To love the people that even that they don't understand. Right. And love them through it. Love them in spite of it. I have a lot of questions, but I want to share some of the things that I've heard from people. Sure. Okay. Sure. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to read. Sure. Cedric has a powerful impact uh, to the extent that the measure of a motivational speaker is to inspire people to act, to stay the course, or to raise the bar in their own lives. Cedric excelled as a motivational speaker. For one of the young daughters of one of our students, Cedric's message made her not want to give up on her goal to become a professional singer. Wow. Wow. How'd you do that? <laughs> I, I, and, and when, I want to tell you this, and I know we've talked about it before. I know that this isn't me, man. I know that this has nothing to do. First of all, this tragedy that can be looked at as a tragedy, I understand that this has nothing to do with me. This has more to do with everyone else. I try to talk to your students, and when I talk to your students, I let them know that, yes, this happened to me, but it, this sort of thing, it happens to us all. No, you might not have lost your legs, but guess what? You've lost something. And this isn't just my story. This is your story, too. This is your reality, too. And, and when we look at it like that, then we become a common community. We become part of the same storyline. I just want to be able to offer up uh, maybe a strategy that helped me get through part of this story. And maybe maybe something that I say helps uh, the students be able to, to maybe figure out the answer to their quiz that they're taking right now, you know? Let me read this. Cedric's time with our team was gripping, emotional, and stimulating. His welcoming demeanor created a safe environment for our team to share their own stories about loss, what you're talking about. Cedric gave rise to the healing and acceptance we all need for the casualties of our lives. Despite the intense nature of the material, Cedric made sure everyone left feeling inspired and uplifted. I have a feeling that the impact that you're having on people is not just from what you're saying on stage. I think it's your performance off stage as well. Wow. I, when I'm done speaking to the students. Oh, no, you're done. You're in pain. You, uh, absolutely. I, you, you probably want to get out of there. You probably, but but it's 
Now people want to touch you. No, but that's they the... Want, they want their photo. They want, yeah, that's they want the to tell gift. their stories. That's the gift, man. That's true. The gift... Part of the gift is, yes, being able to express what you have in your heart and being able to release it. But the other part is this. It's interacting with people, man. And that's that's something that I know God gave me. God gave me the, the feeling to want to engage with people and, and meet them where they are. Some people, they come up and they say, hey, listen... You don't understand this is, is happening in my life and my situation is different. But I love talking to your students, man. That's the best part. Like, man, we sit and we have a ball. Typically, the night crew, the night students, I'm there till almost they close. Well, I'll be walking around to their chairs and they're, they're doing uh, their hair and we'll just talk, man. And that's what I love. It's being real with people. You can stand on the stage, and some people can just stand on the stage and talk. But, man, when you can do one-on-one with people, man, that's that's the blessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's sometimes I'm in pain, and maybe I need to bring my wheelchair more. But I love being able to talk to the people in Atlanta, the Asani School, and the Costa Mesas, and the Temeculas, and the, the San Diegos, and the, the Virginia Beaches. Everybody has been so good to me. Let's talk about some of these lessons. Don't allow the pain on the outside to affect the inside. What do you mean by that? If you're not careful, you can allow what's happening to you to happen inside you. You could do that. The divorce or the layoff, the kid's sickness or the the doctor's report. If you're not careful, you can allow what's on the outside to get inside you. And when that happens... That's when the problem's truly, you think the problem is the diagnosis. The diagnosis is the problem? <laughs> That's, it's okay as long as it's just the diagnosis. The problem is when the diagnosis starts to affect the fighter on the inside. That's when the, the gate has been broken into. That's when the house has been broken into. The burglars get on the inside. That's when you got a problem. Yeah, the burglars, nobody cares if the burglars are on the outside in the yard. Nobody cares about it. It's when they get inside the house. It was when the burglars get inside the house, then you got problems. Do not allow the bad news. The, the, you still got to smile. See, the, the choice when the burglars get on the inside is, can I still smile? Yes, you can still smile. It's your choice whether you're going to allow the bad news to infiltrate your spirit. It's always your choice. It's always your power. We choose to allow the bad news to get on the inside. You always have power to keep it out there. People almost like, oh my gosh, I've been hit. Yeah. I got hit by divorce. I got yeah. hit by a drug addiction. I got hit. You, you literally got hit with shrapnel. Absolutely. How would you not let that penetrate and ruin you? I was very fortunate. I was very fortunate. I had a strong social support system. But there are people that don't have strong social support systems. There are people that haven't been raised in faith. Or there have been people that don't have the audio books and stuff like that. And this is where you have to do. At some point, you might not have any of that. But at some point, you have to understand that the last decision is still yours. It's still your decision. No matter what the diagnosis is. No matter what the layoff is. No matter what the bad news is. No matter what's going on. The divorce. No matter what's going on. You still have the last say so. Uh, my husband's leaving me. I could still smile. I could still laugh. 
Even if I don't want to laugh, I have to be thankful for something. That's the other part of it. Gratitude is one of those little road signs that leads you back to that place that you're supposed to go to. You ever been on the highway, you've been lost, and you're just looking for some resemblance of where you're supposed to be going. And you're like, man, I don't know anything. Some sign, some clue. Some sign. Just give me some roadmap, something. Ask for directions. Stop at a gas station. Gratitude. Gratitude. Gratitude is that one little, uh, hey, make a turn here. You'll be back where you're supposed to be. Gratitude can lead you back there every single time. You got to expand on that because I just love that message. Here's the deal. You're totally lost in whatever life is throwing at you and you're way off path. There's always something that you can do. And that's the smallest thing that we all, it's something that we all can do. It's saying thank you. Find something to be thankful for when it's this. It's, hey, listen, I'm still breathing. Man, don't you know when I Gratitude. when I lost these legs, when I lost these legs, and all I could do in that hospital bed was just sit there and be thankful for whatever. I yeah, I can find things to be mad about, but I can find things to be thankful for too. Hey man, I'm still here. When do you understand? I'm not supposed to be here talking to you right now. I'm supposed to be in Arlington Cemetery right now. I'm supposed to be in Arlington right now. I stepped on thirty pounds of explosives, man. So, hey, look, everything is, is <laughs> I can say thank you for everything. This water is cold. Mm. My left hand still works. I'm here in California talking to you. I got a wife and kids and they love me. My eyes blink. I can eat. I'm healthy. Uh, <laughs> man, you... You have to find something to be thankful for. And here's the truth of it all. This is why. A lot of people say, man, yes, I can find something to be thankful for. But why? Here's the deal. When you find one thing to be thankful for and truly thankful, I'm not just talking about just lip service. I'm talking about truly thankful for. Then this is what life does. It gives you a bonus. It comes along and says this. You're thankful for this? Let me give you something else to be thankful for. And when you're thankful for that, let me give you something else to be thankful for. Now, it starts off with you. You start the ball rolling, but life gives it momentum. Your gratitude gives the experience more and more and more momentum. It's like a snowball. You build a snowball, but you don't have any control on how big it gets. It just picks up more and more and more momentum. But here's what a lot of people do. They use that same philosophy, but they use it inversely. And you find something to complain about, life will be like, wow, <laughs> let me give you something else Try to complain this. about. Yeah. You like that? <laughs> you like to complain about this? Hey, let me tell you this. Let me help you out. Let me give you more of what you've been asking for. Life is taking your cues. It's not throwing this stuff at you just by coincidence. It's taking your cues. <laughs> You're the coach. You call the plays. It's not life is just not just picking on you. No, everything happens. Bad things happen to everybody. But bad things don't continue to happen to everybody. It's a difference. Bad things don't continue to happen to everybody. We are the ones that dictate. You think that life is going to be so great. 
when you're you got no problems. If I could just pay off all these bills, man, life will be it will be right where I wanted to be. If I could just get rid of this sickness, oh, if I could just get the kids out of college, oh man, I'm gonna be there. It's gonna be awesome. No. Not what life is trying to do. Life is not trying to give you a problem-free existence. It's not. That's that wasn't the point of this whole thing. It was there to allow the problems to be your teacher for you to become better. See, we want life to be better. Life's like, no, no, no. I want you to be better. No, life, life, life. No, I want you to be better. Life's like, no, I want you to be better. And it's the constant struggle between you and life. And the truth is this. When I become better, life becomes better. People, are you listening? <laughs> life becomes better. I swear, if, if people get nothing out of this but that one message, that when we're lost and we're looking for directions, you know, that roadside sign of gratitude. It's always that's there. That's the way back. Gratitude. Yeah. And it's there whenever you want it, man. It's not like you, you know, when you lost, sometimes you got to go around the block or you got to look for a sign. Or, uh-uh. Gratitude is always there. It's always there, man. You, you're sitting there. You're asking for directions from this place or that place and plugging in GPS coordinates. And you No, it's gratitude will always be there. Brilliant. Lion versus elephant. Oh, my God. I talk to your students about this, and, and here's the excuse that we make. We say, uh... I'm, I don't come from the right family. Uh, I didn't graduate from the right high school. I don't have enough of money. I don't have enough influence. I don't know the right people. She's prettier than She's I am. She's prettier than I am. She's smarter than I am. Hey, here's the deal. Those are all excuses. And I get it. I get it. I get it. I can say that because I don't know every situation, but I do know this. There's a lion that has less advantages is an elephant. Elephant's ten times bigger than the lion. Ten times smarter than the lion. If you just look at the dynamics of their intelligence, elephants are way smarter than lions. The, the lion has speed, but what good is speed when you get to something that's so big? The lion has every disadvantage. Elephant's stronger, smarter, bigger, taller. Every advantage. The elephant has every advantage. But the lion has only one thing going for it, and it's not speed. It's his attitude. It's attitude. The attitude of the lion looks at every other single animal in that whole continent and says, I am looking at you as an opportunity. I'm looking at you as an opportunity. The way the lion sees it is, hey, listen, I'm not looking for any favors. I'm not looking for any advantages. I'm not looking for no hookups. All I need is an opportunity to be in the same space with the elephant, to be in the same space as the rhinoceros, to be in the same space as the giraffe, be in the same space as any animal on that entire continent. Just need an opportunity. The lion doesn't say, elephant, you're too big for me. I'll go eat something else. No. No. Elephant, if you step on me, then I'll die. So I'm going to go pick on something else, like maybe the hyena. No. Lion says, "Uh uh-uh, you're big. That's just the opportunity I've been looking for. You're smarter than me. That's just the opportunity I've been looking for. Elephant's like, I'm big, but and we choose who we want to be. We choose who we're going to be.
We choose if we're going to be a lion or the elephant every day. All the excuses we've been making, bigger, stronger, taller, prettier, wealthier, don't make a difference. It's your attitude. There's been somebody in the past that's done it before. You got to do this. You got to take everything in your environment and use it as a weapon to overcome your obstacle. Muhammad Ali fighting George Foreman. George Foreman has every single advantage. But Ali uses everything in his environment. Ali says, it's not just one-on-one. I'm going to use the ring. I'm going to use the crowd. I'm going to use the canvas. I'm even going to use the referee against you. And the greatest warriors, understand this. I can even use my opponent as an ally. I can even use my opponent as an ally. I was talking to Cam Newton, the quarterback for the Carolina Panthers, and he explained something to me. He says, man, I use the defenses against themselves because it's four or five of them that are trying to tackle me. But I use them as my weapon. So I don't have to outrun them. But all I have to do is get them to hesitate just a slight second, a, a millisecond. If I can get them to hesitate, then I got them. And some of us need to understand this. Life will make you hesitate just for a split second. Take your eye off what's important for a quick second, and it got you. You take your eyes off what's important, and you stop giving thanks. Start that pity party. It's just like me throwing you a football win. If you take your eye off the ball for even a split second, you could drop the ball. You could drop it. But when you keep your eyes on the ball and track it through the air the entire time till it goes from my hand to yours then you got a chance of catching it. What do people take their eyes off of? Oh, my like, goodness. Like the importance of a uh, committed marriage, the importance of yeah. their health and well-being, the importance of raising their kids. Yeah. They, for a split second, they take their eye off of that. Take your eye off of that marriage for a split second and begin to complain about what other people have. Ah. Oh, uh, Uh, Madeline and John, they got the greatest marriage. He brings her flowers. You're taking your eye off that that one piece of beautiful thing that you have in your life, and you're focusing on what somebody else has. The grades, they're getting perfect grades. I'm trying to study. I'm studying every night, and it's not working for me. Take your eyes off of that for just a split second. You could drop it all. Hmm. Man. Wait, I couldn't have done this four years ago, man. Mm. Couldn't have talked about this four years ago. This came as a gift, man. Mm. This came as a gift. Going back to the lion and elephant, here's one more thing. When we begin to make the excuses to how big the elephant is and how smart the elephant is or, or how many advantages other people have, then we begin to lessen our power. We shrink our own power. We do suicide to our own abilities when we do that. Never, ever, ever diminish your your power by magnifying the advantages of your opponent. Never do that. And your opponent can be... It could be... Your own It it could be your own mind. Your own bad attitude. That's truly... Your own perception of what life throws at you. 
I, to be honest with you, that's the only opponent that there ever is. It's not the opponent that's in front of you. It's the opponent that's on the inside of you. But when you can defeat the opponent that's on the inside of you, then you win. You had me write down effort as part of your message for us today. I was talking to your students in Atlanta, <laughs> and I was telling them this. I said, hey, it's something you got to understand. Effort has nothing to do with the teacher. It has nothing to do with the students to your right and your left. It has nothing to do with the weather outside. It has nothing to do with anything or anyone else. It has everything to do with you. And this is it. Effort controls outcome. We, in our society, we get wrapped up into outcomes. I want the gold medal. I want the blue ribbon. I want number one. I want to be the best. But that's where we sometimes we stay at. See, if you want to, the gold medal, then you'll put in gold medal effort and allow the outcome to take care of itself. If you want the blue ribbon, then if you really want the blue ribbon, then you put in the blue ribbon effort. What we want is we want the blue ribbon without the blue ribbon effort. It doesn't work that way. All right. When you look at it from that aspect, then that means we can have whatever we want. Right. Because you can they see effort doesn't come because of talent. See, some people are gifted. Those gifts only come to certain people. But effort, it comes to everybody. Hmm. Effort has nothing to do with, with who your parents were. It has nothing to do with because your parents are tall, you're going to be tall. No, effort says, listen, I come to everybody. It's not inherited. It's not in the gene pool. Effort comes to everybody. And that means everybody can overcome. Everybody can be number one. Because everybody can put in number one effort. And even it, like the guy that says, I'll never beat Usain Bolt. Usain Bolt is gifted and he works hard. That's great. But that is when we stop competing against the guy to our left and our guy to our right. We're competing with the highest effort on the inside. I just ran Boston. I finished the Boston Marathon three weeks ago. And yeah, I was, yeah, me too. I didn't see you there. Was, yeah, yeah, I was I there. I was running. You didn't you, see me? You were one of the faster ones. Oh, thank you. You were one of the faster ones. You finished in record time. But for me... <laughs> But for me, I was, one of the, I was one of the last ones to finish. One of the last people on the course to finish. I finished in like, it took me like eight hours this year. And I was so down, man. And I was trying to get a PR, trying to get a personal record. And I didn't get it this year. And I felt terrible about it for, for a couple of days. Until the point where I was like, man, you know what? And at mile 22, I was giving 100%. I couldn't give anymore. I was at 100% at mile 22, 23, 24. I was giving 100%. And I wasn't giving 100% of your effort. I was giving 100% of my effort. And when I crossed the line, I was like, man, you know what? I really don't have anything to be sour about. And now I could be sour about it if I was giving 50% at mile 23, but I wasn't. I was giving 100%, man. Now, I can get better next year. But that means I got to sharpen my sword today, though. I got to sharpen my axe right now if I want to be better next year. I can increase my level 100% by what I do in the dark, when I do behind the scenes, when I do when the camera's off. Did you run marathons and do Ironmans prior to? Never. I've just been in the Army, man. I've just been in the Army. No. I've been back and forth to Afghanistan. I had never done 
Ironmans or I had done best ranger competitions. I had done ranger challenges and stuff oh, like that. Oh, me too. I didn't yeah. see that. No, no. You were, you were there the year before. Okay, okay. You were there the year before I was there. Okay. But that's the thing. I had done tough stuff before, but I had never done it uh, as an amputee. I had never done a marathon. I had never run 26 why, miles. Why, why are you doing them? Why, why is that important to you? I, I, it's important to me. Let me say it like this. When I got injured, it was really important for me to continue to be Cedric. It was really important for me not to just be Cedric in attitude and for me to continue to be Cedric in, in thinking and laughter and conversation, but it was really important for me to be able to look in that mirror and say that that injury didn't get the best of me. Plus it's credibility. It's credibility. I didn't understand that until a little bit later on. Right. Because I knew that, all right, well, I'm telling people about what happened to me. But I'm also telling people about what I'm doing. That didn't come to later. Yeah. But in the, in, in the hospital bed, it was like, you know, I'm going to run a marathon. It makes you a better messenger. It makes you a better messenger. Yeah. But I will tell you this. In the beginning, it was just like, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a marathon. I'm going to not only be the Cedric that I was before, but I'm going to be a better version of him. Wow. I'm not going to allow this to steal the only part of me that I know exists right now. I held on to who I was so tightly when that I just like, you know what? I'm going to do something even more than I did before with less. And I don't know where that came from, but I did know that that was important. I knew it was important. You're doing more with less. We can that. all do that, though. Right. Right? We can all do that. See, we look at... <laughs> I know I'm not, I'm not 30 anymore, and and for a while I was trying. To, I was at the gym trying to have a 30 year old body. Mm-hmm. No, I just I don't need to be a healthy 30 year old. I need to be a really good healthy 57 year old. Absolutely, and if you do that, yeah. then guess what? You're going to be a better version of who you are. Yeah. There's a better version of us that exists at all times. Mm-hmm. And somebody said, "Man, well, how can you be a better version of yourself? You're missing two legs in the right hand, part of your right hand." Better, better doesn't mean with me and all of my faculties. Better means the part of me that will exist forever. There's a part of me that will exist forever. And this experience of me not having legs, it just made me a better version of who I already am. We think that better means uh, younger, prettier, stronger. No, no. That stuff will come and it will go. But there's a part of us that's on the inside that yearns to be better, man. And the only thing that you're going to be able to do to get a stronger, better version of you is challenges. That's why challenges come. Challenges come to make the spirit prettier. Mm. See, (laughs) you go to the plastic surgeon, and the plastic surgeon can make the outside prettier, but he can't make the inside prettier. Mm. The only thing that can make the inside prettier is challenges and obstacles. Life is like, look, I'm going to be your, your plastic surgeon for your spirit. I'm going to be the plastic surgeon for your spirit. I'm going to come in. I'm going to give you a makeover. How are you going to do that? I'm going to give you uh, an irritable day, an irritable boss. You're going to give me a better disposition by giving me a knucklehead to work for? Sure am. How are you going to do that? Diagnosis. (laughs) How are you going to make my life? How are you going to make me a better person? You're going to put a frown on my face. Yeah, I'm going to do that for a little while. But you're going to learn to appreciate stuff, and you'll smile later. And that smile that you put on later will be a better smile than you got right now. you appreciate it more. you appreciate it more, man. 
We think that you're going to get a better life. You can't go higher until you go deeper, man. Go outside right now and look at one of them skyscrapers. To build that skyscraper, guess what? You got to go deep, man. You seen Ground Zero in New York City when they were building it? Man, the, the hole was... <laughs> The hole was so, it was stories deep, man. It's the tallest building in New York right now. But to, for it to get that way, for them to, for them to build that, that building, uh, World Trade Center 1, man, you had to be at ground zero when they were building that sucker, man. It was so deep. For you to get a better perspective on life, for you to build a, a higher ground in life, man, life's got to take you deeper. We want a skyscraper life with no breaking of ground. How you do that? You can build a Lego as tall as you want. One block on top of another block, but on top of another block. But if it's only as wide as your finger, then guess what? It'll topple down as soon as the air conditioning comes on in here. Got no foundation. You want structure? You got to have foundation. The foundation comes from challenges yeah. and, and gratitude. How, how high you want to be built? It's directly tied into how deep you want to go, man. Right. Man, Nelson Mandela, for him to become the president of South Africa, this man spent 27 years in Robben Island. Christopher Columbus, for him to discover the new world, he had to spend seven years in the Queen's Court. Marco Polo had to spend years in Genghis Khan's court for him to get these new spices and for him to find out about the new world. You want, a, you want a, a skyscraper life, but you don't want a skyscraper foundation. Hmm. You can't have one without the other, man. I'm kind of laughing here because I have a feeling that people listening to this right now who have listened to my master's interviews before are probably thinking that Wynn left the room. I'm talking less <laughs> in today's interview than I've ever talked. I'm just like... You're pulling that out of me, man. You're oh, pulling man. out of I'm me. I'm like... <laughs> I got a box of Kleenex to my right... <laughs> Oh. Yeah, man. This is this is You're what amazing. it is, man. Uh, not trying equals winning. Oh my what goodness! Let me tell you this, man. Let me tell you this. I grew up in a poor part of North Carolina, and uh, there used to be these bullies. There used to be these bullies, man. And the bullies, what they would do is they would pick on younger kids, man, on the school bus. So I, at some point, as a 12 or 13-year-old, I thought that, all right, well, I don't have to worry about beating these boys up. I can't. I'm not strong enough to fight them. So I'm going to outsmart them. I'm just not going to fight back. I'm not going to try. And if I don't try, then guess what? They'll beat me up. But if they beat me up, then guess what? They still didn't win because I didn't fight back. Wow. Unfortunately, what that does is this. That destroys your inner man. I thought that if I didn't fight these bullies back because they were bigger and stronger and, and tougher and meaner, I thought that, well, I, I don't have to worry about anybody ever saying that Cedric lost a fight. Because I didn't fight back. But that's where fear began to come in. I became fearful of losing. I began to be fearful of losing the fight, when. And when you become fearful of losing, then your philosophy is to not try. And the more I don't try, then it means 
means I don't lose. And the more I don't lose, then that means in some way no losses equal wins. An empty loss column means a full win column. No, no, no. We think that, well, I just won't try out for I won't try out. And if I don't try out, then I don't have to worry about losing. And if I didn't lose, then I win. I'm a success. I never lost. No, no. It means you're more of a failure. I lived through six or seven years of getting picked on, man, until I came in the Army. <laughs> and the Army's like, well, you don't have a choice. You got to fight. And when the fear got taken off because the Army made me a fighter, well, <laughs> I was like, man, what was I afraid of? What was I afraid of? I went back to my hometown, and I talked to, to one of the guys that used to pick on me. And at this point, man, I'm in the Army. I've been in the Army. I've been to war. I'm afraid of no person, right? And I stepped to him. I said, hey, man, why'd you used to pick on me, man? Why you used to pick on me? He was like, man, we were stupid back then, man. We didn't know. He's like, man, but real talk, back then, man, I just wanted people to be afraid of me. He said, man, I don't, I didn't want to come to school and get sent to detention every day. And I didn't want that, man. I don't want to fight with kids. I just want people to fear me. And back then, man, you used to be afraid all the time. I was like, man, so you're telling me that all I had to do was punch you back and you would have left me alone? He was like, well, man, I would have still tried to hang on and make sure that you were afraid of me. But if you had swung back, then I would have probably went to the next kid. Hmm. And I was like, I lived for six years <laughs> of this fear, and you just told me this now? So, man, you know how long it took me to check that complex? He's like, man, you know, like, he was like, man, a couple times, man, the kids that I used to take their lunch money, man, we just scrapped it out. I just went to the next kid. What? You mean to tell me all I had to do was just, just stand up to my own fears? That's all I had to do was stand up to my own fear and punch you back? Now, I'm not advocating violence. But what I am saying, there's a liberation in fighting. Half the time, when in our society, we've been in a good fight in so long, then guess what? We don't even know how to fight anymore. I told your students, I was like, a good ass whooping is probably the best thing for <laughs> all of us. Because what it does is it forces us to find out about us. And a good ass whooping could be it could be a divorce. It could a be a breakdown. It could be a nervous break. It could be a divorce. It could be bankruptcy. See, if you go too long without getting in a good fight, you don't know which hand is the best. Left hand or right hand. You don't know bob and weave and the, and the bouncing left and right. You don't know how to counter punch. You don't know if you can take a punch. <laughs> I saw this guy in the army. He was the baddest dude in our whole platoon win. The drill sergeants put us together. And the, this, this little guy swung and got the first punch off. This big dude, man, he was probably 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, and his nose started bleeding. As soon as the big dude saw his own blood, he tapped out, man. He tapped out. He had every advantage. But he saw his own blood. He was more afraid of his own incapacitation. See, sometimes we think that the obstacle is so much bigger than us.
And, and we just say, well, look, you know what? I'll just not try. And if I don't try, then that big obstacle, it won't beat me. No, man. The obstacle is just as afraid of something as you are of it. It's afraid of something. It might not be afraid of you. But by you staying in the fight long enough, you expose the obstacle, the challenge, the person, the, the, the whatever it is. You expose it in its own fear. Just stick around in the ring long enough, man. One round, two rounds, three rounds, 50 rounds, whatever it is, stand up, continue to wake up, continue to fight. That's what competition is, man. Competition is not just showing up, but it's showing up with the spirit of a fighter. Before we started recording, Cedric, you uh, shared with me a story of after one of your speaking events, a yeah. woman came up and shared something pretty personal about her. Can, can you share that with us? She was at the end of the line. Usually when we're at your schools, we stay there until the last student is gone, and she waited till the end of the line. man. And All the rest of the students were gone on break or something like that. And she said, I want to tell you something. I'm going to go home tonight, and I am going to have the courage enough to stand up to my husband. I said, stand up to you. Whoa, 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 whoa. We talking about stand up to your husband. He said, I've been, I've been physically and mentally, emotionally abused for the last 17 years. Tonight, I'm going to go home and stand up to him for the first time ever. I said, 17 years? What in the world? She said, after you said this, when you told me that the bully just wanted your fear. He didn't want your lunch money. He didn't want my coat. He wanted my fear. And when the bully told you that all he wanted was your fear, if you had stood up to him long enough, then he would have went and found somebody else to get their fear from. It's not that he wants your lunch money. It's not that he wants, he wa no, he wants your fear. Your fear. Fear can stop us from doing and being who we're supposed to be. Fear stopped me from trying. And if not trying means not losing and not losing means winning, then I just, I'll just be a non-participant. I'll be a non-contestant. Why? Because I fear losing. Man, winning is something that is so powerful for the human spirit. It's not the gold medal. It's not the medal that I put around my neck on Boston when I finished the Boston Marathon. It's how I feel about myself. It's how I feel about obstacles. If I can do that, wonder what else I could do. If I can stand up to this person, if I can be courageous in this one moment, wonder what else I could do. What else could I do? Last time I heard you speak, you talked about your two daughters yep. who are now... Eight and twelve, absolutely. So back then they were four and eight yeah. when yeah. when this happened to to Daddy. Yeah, man, bro, that's the toughest part, man. I remember the night, the afternoon. It was at four four p.m. My wife had to drop me off at the buses and take you out to the airplane. My wife had to drop me off, and my youngest daughter was four years old. She didn't understand why I was leaving. She thought I was leaving because I wanted to leave. Because I wanted to go to the war. 
I said, no, honey, I don't want to go. And she said, don't go, don't go, just just stay here. And she, she grabbed my leg, man, and uh, she was just crying for me not to go. And uh, i never forget that, bro. i never forget that moment, man. It's, it's carved into my brain. When I came back without any legs, I couldn't stand to look at myself in the mirror. Couldn't stand the sight of who I had become. Sitting there in a wheelchair with bandages. I had bandages everywhere. I had, people were feeding me through tubes and stuff, and they saw me. I was ashamed of who I, who I was. But they, it was almost like they hugged me the same way that I did when I had legs. Brother, do you understand that that is pure love? That's what real love is. It has nothing to do with what you look like, of what you earn. Of who you've become, who you were, who you are. When people really love you, all that stuff doesn't matter. My wife still loves me like I was when I had legs. It taught me a lot about what real love is, man. It's not about what you look like. When you love somebody, it's not that TV love, man. When you love somebody, you love them the good and the bad. My daughters act like they didn't even see the tubes that were sticking out of my arm, man. They acted like they didn't even see the machine that was hooked up to my body. I had a pump going in my arm, man. They act like they didn't even see that stuff. I'm in a bed, man. They hop right in there, watching TV and cartoons with me. I'm like, don't they see these freaking pipes and these... These tubes, don't they smell this scar, this this flesh that's underneath this bandage is bleeding? Don't they see this? Are you crazy? They ain't care about that stuff. We took naps right there in the bed, man. It taught me what love really is, man. It helped me understand that the part of me that even I can't stand to look at, it doesn't matter to some people. And they helped me begin to love the part of me that's on the inside. The only time that I know that I'm walking different than you is when I walk through a mirror. That's the only time I really pay attention to it looking different. Your students gave me the best gift. They said, after the first, this may have been Sherman Oaks. Or, they said, you have been on this stage for about an hour and a half. And honestly, we forgot that you didn't have real legs. We forgot all about it. He's like, you're taking these pictures. I honestly, I forgot the whole point of you even being here. <laughs> the message we were talking and your attitude was so positive that I forgot that you didn't even have legs. I forgot the, the hook to the whole thing. And I will tell you, man, that was one of the greatest gifts that they could have given me. Because that means that I'm not my legs or the lack thereof. I'm not the four-finger Cedric. I'm not the disabled Cedric. I'm the same dude. 
students that are out there, you're not your problems, man. You're not your shortcomings. You're not your bank statement. You're not the neighborhood you live. That's not you. You are somebody that's far, far greater. It took me losing my legs to find that out. And that's not just true for me, but that's true for everybody. That's true for all of us, man. I feel great that I'm here in Beverly Hills, but I'm going to feel just as good when I'm in small town USA. It has nothing to do with my location or, or my big statement or my, what I'm wearing. I'm in, I'm in a pair of gym shorts and an Under Armour tag on T-shirt. It's not who I am. And it's my responsibility to live a life that that is proud of whatever I got left, man. That's all I got left. Well, tonight you're going to be in a tuxedo on stage. Absolutely. At an amazing event representing the Gary Sinise Foundation. Absolutely. And I'm going to be proud in your... In your audience. So, so grateful that, first of all, you came into my life, that you've allowed me to share you with my team, my network, but also that you're, you're doing something. You know, you're doing something with uh, what life threw at you, what life gave to you. And uh, just know it's making, it's making a huge difference. When, when I met you, man, I was like, Apologizing, but I was like, man, it's some kind of connection, man. I know that this guy is he, a different dude. It's a different guy, man. It's something it, 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 you could just tell, man. Sometimes you meet people, and then there's an instant connection. And I didn't know what it was. And this is before I heard you speak. Actually, this is just like I didn't know anything about your organization or anything. I was just like, man, that's a good dude, man. Well, I feel the same way. You're a good man, Cedric. Thanks for oh, doing thank this today. I thank People you. are going to love this. Hey, if your students are going to hear this, I need them to know about the Gary Sinise Foundation, though, man. Please do. Gary Sinise Foundation is like, uh, it's another gift. I live in a house right now that has stairs in it and has bathrooms that I can't get into. It's not handicap accessible. I bought my house before I got injured. I didn't think I was ever going to be an amputee, man. So it's got slopes in the backyard. It's got all kind of challenges in the house, man. That I, I mean, it's just hard, man. And it's tough to go upstairs. It's really tough. Um, but I do it every day. And it's hard to get out of the wheelchair just to go use the restroom. It's hard to get out of the wheelchair just to hop in the bath and take a bath. Can't get in the shower. It's, it's not a woe is me story. This is just what it is, man. And Gary Sinise comes along and says, hey, man, you guys deserve to live in a house where you can still be independent. I don't want to have to call my wife every time I need soy sauce. <laughs> That's crazy, right? No, we're going we're gonna to help you out. We're going to put you and your family in a house, and you can start all over again. I said, well, what's it going to cost me? She said, it's not going to cost you anything. Pay the, pay the utilities. I said, oh, well, okay, well, where is it going to be? It's going to be like a, a fixer-upper? It's like, no, we're going to build you a brand-new house. That didn't start with Gary. It started with gratitude. Giving thanks for what I had. And that brings along a wonderful soul like Gary Sinise and his foundation. 
that's how we actually met, man. You guys do so much for our foundation. And uh, I talk to your students and I say, man, listen, it's important for me to meet the people that are doing fundraisers for months out of the year for our foundation. And you guys support a number of foundations. But it's so important that they be able to see. Your students came out to my groundbreaking, to the groundbreaking of my house. I get there and I'm like, who are all these people? Atlanta, Asani has signed. They wrote, they built signs up. And it was like a whole, if it wasn't for them showing up, it probably would have been like 30 people at the, at the groundbreaking. But Arlene brought the whole student body to the, to the ground. We ran out of chairs, Win. And my wife was like, who are all these people? And it was just so good. I wanted the students to be able to actually see where all the hard work was going. They got a chance to see the plot of land. They got a chance to actually see the shovels going in the dirt. They got a chance to see that, man. It's Cedric, you, you served, and now we get to serve you. Thank you. Thanks, Cedric. I Thank you. you so much, brother. I mean that, man. I love you. I love you too, bro. You don't understand, man. I really do. Really do.